0: want to say it's really an honor to be back with you guys i've had the lived in town a long time and I've had the privilege of coming to Duke University for years and years so it's good to see some of you and I recognize a lot of you from from years previous so thank you for the honor of, of coming back and uh, and letting me come back and be with you I, I'm the pastor of a small church here in town called Emmaus Way that meets in uh, downtown Durham right in the Brightleaf area so if you ever want to check us out you're certainly welcome we're a Sunday Night Church, but you can check us out on the web. And I I do have kind of, I want to say also, uh, welcome to moms and dads who are here. Uh, It's it's just a delight to see you guys here. Um, I've now got a ninth grader and a seventh grader, so my kids are old enough that when I walk around college campuses, it used to be just five years ago, in my mind I thought I was still 22, and so I would walk around thinking that I blended in, and and then somebody would say, sir, you're lost, and then it was like, oh my gosh, I'm in my 40s, I, I don't look 22 anymore. But now, having a high schooler and a middle schooler, I walk around college campuses and I imagine my kids on those campuses, you know, and kind of thinking, oh, what, you know, where will they go? And even tonight's subject of, of how will they live their lives while in school is one that's meaningful to me. So those of you are moms and dads, I know you're phenomenally proud of your kids, that, that they're a part of this community and that they're at Duke, and so congratulations to all of you. I also have one little obligation tonight, um, and I, I want you to help me out with THIS. Um- this is the self-promotional part I just published a book called free for- all uh, that Baker books did it came out about seven weeks ago and so it's a it's a book on um, basically a little bit of what we're going to do tonight is uh, it's an encouragement to um, ask communities to, to interpret God's Word together right rather than just waiting for professionals and experts to tell them what it means but to, to do that together and the community practices that help us read God's Word so hopefully everyone will will, will tweet that and Facebook that and use all of your social media, and then my publisher will see that you did that, and, and they'll be really proud of me. So that was the only self-promotional moment, hopefully, tonight, because I'm going to tell you some pretty embarrassing stories here. Um, our task tonight is to, to talk a bit about... What does it mean to be a Christ follower on a college campus? And, and I do like speaking on this subject. Uh, I've lived in Durham Chapel Hill for now 20 years, uh, and, and then I went to school at UNC. So I've lived in this area a long time. This is a very academic community. In fact, uh, the Research Triangle Park is reputed to have the highest percentage of PhDs in the world in one place in a small place. So this is a college town kind of place, and and the universities here affect everything, every aspect of life, even if you're many years removed from school, as I am. So this is an important subject. Um, And and let me tell you a little bit about living as, quote-unquote, a Christian for me on campus, because there were hard moments. Um, When I was a freshman, 17 years old, uh, driving with my parents to Chapel Hill to go to school, really excited to be there. I was a high school soccer player, um, and I was in, in the soccer program at UNC, I was the lowest of the low of the low. I was the unrecruited walk-on. And I, and I can remember the night that I found out that I was going to be on the team, or, or in my case, uh, on the freshman team. It was a really big moment. I was excited about that. I was We were working out on the, on, on the, the turf, and, and I was talking to one of the guys on the team, and I knew that he was going to be one of the stars. In fact, he went on to be about a 10- or 12-year pro. He was a phenomenal player and, um, and great guy, too. But uh, he asked me a little bit about myself. He said, well, you know, what do you like? What do you do? And and I'd had kind of a sketchy high school time. And so it was important for me. I thought, okay, I don't want to do this, but I'm going to suck it up, and I'm going to identify myself as a Christian to TJ, who's going to be the star soccer player here, uh, which he did go on to, to be. And, and I said, well, yeah, I'm a Christian, and blah, blah, blah. You know, I just told him other stuff. And at the end of that workout, this truck appeared with the largest quantity of beer I've ever seen in my whole life. Now, I was not really used to campus life. Now, and this is, uh, grant you, this is in this 1979. There wasn't a lot of litigation, not a lot of laws. When we moved into our dorms at UNC, um, the, the, the housing authority provided kegs of beer for for, for students and parents uh, to drink. And you know, so the logic of parents drink Drinking and then driving back to rural North Carolina on the road. I mean, we just didn't think in those terms. Um, but the largest truck of beer that I'd ever seen in my life appeared. And, and, and the soccer team was, was, was noted consumers. And so beer started <laughs> flying around, and, and somebody started to throw me a beer, and TJ the star, said, no, don't throw him a beer. He's a Christian. You know, and this is my first hour on the team, and I'm thinking I'm going to have to wear that label for the rest of the season. And and it, it took a while. So, I mean, those are you know, challenging moments. Um, uh, my first semester, I was very interested in, in religion, and so I took a class that's pretty infamous at UNC called Religion 22. Right now it's taught by the most famous Textual critic, meaning somebody who studies the Bible and decides if the words in the Bible are the real words. A guy named Bart Ehrman, and and uh, Ehrman is famous. If you go into Barnes Noble and Noble in the religion section, he's one of the few scholars that has books all over the place. Quote misquoting Jesus. Check out Passion Week on CNN, and he'll be on you know television talking about that. But it, that class, this was actually before he got there, but that class was infamous. For breaking the faith of college students, in fact the the intervarsity students at UNC for years used to have an after religion 22 seminar that I would get often asked to speak at. Um, but my very first seminar, you know, I'm excited. I'm excited about the material. You know, I, I just found out I was on the soccer team two days before. It's good stuff for me. And this graduate student comes in. He's, he, he looks like a graduate student, which means he looked a little bit like Jesus. He had a kind of a long beard, you know, and, and he had the backpack and the stickers. And the guy was a graduate student and he kind of said, well, we'll be beginning with the book of math. Matthew and the New Testament. Can anybody tell me possibly who the author of Matthew was? Now, I was a Southern Baptist, rural kid. My hands the first one up, and I'm thinking, yeah, I thought college was going to be a little harder, but we'll just jump right in. Matthew? You know, and, and the whole class kind of snickered because I was really the only freshman in that seminar, and everybody knew we were about to hear a lot of information of why Matthew probably didn't write that book of the New Testament, and there I I was kind of identified as geeky, post fundamentalist kid who, you know, who probably is going to have to be nurtured through this class and probably going to break down crying a couple times and <laughs> run to my staff worker and say, Help me, help me, help me, I'm crying. And, and so, um, and, 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 and throughout the four years that I was there, um, I was a poli science social major, but I took lots of religion courses, and it was a fairly Kind of infamous environment. There were many, many times where I had to work really hard to explain to somebody that I could possibly be smart and also be a Christian because those two things didn't seem to fit together. So that was quite challenging. Let me tell you even a worse story and then we'll move on from this. Um, is again, I had a pretty sketchy high school time. So college, I worked really hard to, to, and, and probably too hard, but I worked too hard to be a non-drinker and to not participate in, in some of the things that were going on. Now I did live in a fraternity house my final two and a half years. So you, you learn some things in a fraternity house. I mean, it was not uncommon to wake up in the morning and hear people in the bathroom and kind of go, okay, I hear three girls and two guys in there. And it was just, it was kind of a, a wild environment uh, to live in. But that was my place and it was kind of my ministry. But there was always this tension like, we really would love to catch this guy really mess up. I mean, we'd like to, I mean, it was, there were, you know, people, it was a big house, 90 guys, and there were at least 10 or 20 that really would love to see me embarrass myself. And I helped them enjoy that moment uh, near the end of my senior year. Um, my, my wife, who was my girlfriend at the time, uh, was an RA in her dorm, and she wasn't able because of duty to come to our big post-formal yard party type of thing. And, and one of the things you pay money in a fraternity you get alcohol whether you use it or not so they handed me my two bottles of champagne which normally I would have given to someone, but I was kind of mad I held my bottles of champagne sitting in the yard party, it's getting up to about 90 degrees, it's hot, the bottles are cold, and I thought, you know, I've never had champagne, I've heard that it's good, the French seem to like it, Uh, you know, and so uh, so, you know, I pop the quartz, which is kind of fun, you aim them at a friend and, you know, you get a little goo all over you and then you start drinking, and so you know, just, I'm mad at Mimi. She's not showing up to this event. And 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 um, and so somehow in the next 45 minutes, I finished both bottles. Because <laughs> if, if, if you're a champagne drinker, you know, it's quite sweet, and it's fizzy, and it's cool, and it's kind of like a, a Coke on steroids. And, and so, I, you know, and then the sun is hitting, and I've had the champagne, and now I'm declining toward wanton drunkenness. And, and somewhere between moving toward drunkenness and getting there, um, I'm having a big time. Um, my fraternity had a, an emblem, the badge of honor in our house, was called the Mad Hat. It was this huge straw hat, and it was given at the formal to the person who had the highest grade point average and partied the most. And obviously, I didn't win that, but, but on that day, the winner gave me the hat. So I'm in this ridiculous hat, um, I'm sitting there. I'm drunk, and kind of, you know, the the one of the somebody else, one of the girls that hung out around the house who I'd kind of always looked at. She'd look, you know, that sort of thing. Somehow, I'm in the hat. I'm drunk, and she's on my lap, and so we're sitting there. And there's photo. Thank God there wasn't Facebook because, you know, <laughs> but, but 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 photos were taken. Um, and then I hear this hush, and the parting of the Red Sea there. And here comes Mimi who has kindly found someone to cover for her, and she's all dressed up, and she's coming to the party, I'm in the hat, I'm drunk, and there's a girl on my lap, and all of my fraternity brothers are like, this is the moment we've waited our whole life to see, let's see how he gets out of this one, and it was not a good moment, uh, was, I could tell you more if you're interested, but it's all to, it's <laughs> somehow we got married, but it's... It's all to say that, that being, a, being a Christian, a Christ follower, and I know some of you probably claim that title and some don't, but I'm here to say if you don't, for those who claim that, it's a challenge. It's, it's difficult in, in a university environment. Um, let me ask you this question, and, and I'll explain this a little bit while I'm asking this, but, but what do you think? And I think from, I'm I'm going to ask you to answer this from a positive and a jaded way. So if you're kind of a cynic, this is your moment too. Um, But what is the currency that drives American universities? What's the soul of, of, of American universities? What drives us? Why are we here? Why is other people here who aren't undergrads like you? What drives it? I'm sorry? Success is exactly right. That's one. Sure. Let's make a list. Money. money. Money drives the American university. I have a buddy who, well, I'll tell you about him in a second. But money, success, what else? Let's say the passion for knowledge. Passion for knowledge. <laughs> Absolutely. Are your parents here? <laughs> a passion. I mean, I love to learn. I mean, that was exciting for me. Not everybody's going to be a cynic, but yeah. What else? It's knowledge, money, what else what drives sure arrogance arrogance is a part of if, if you are able if you've ever cracked a dinner party around Chapel Hill or Durham uh, you'll, you'll see that <laughs> yeah sure sure meeting new, meeting new people it's a melting place I mean it really is a melting pot of people absolutely what else fun, fun. I'm sorry okay right exactly others So we've got some exciting motives and then we've also got some mixed motives for why we're in kind of the university thing. I have a good friend, Jim Thomas. He's an amazing, he's actually somebody you should have come here sometime. He's a, a, one of the most um, deeply involved uh, Christians in this area and uh, particularly in partnership in, in Africa, uh, runs an organization called Africa Rising, but he's an epidemiologist at UNC. He studies the social conditions behind disease and epidemics. He's an expert on STDs, on um, pandemics, things like that. Fantastic guy. Um, I think he's the InterVarsity Advisor or at, at UNC. But Jim, when I met as a brand new assistant professor at UNC, rising star, came in, and, and I have you know kind of always had the wanderlust to, to go into academics. And so I was kind of waxing romantic about his job. And he said, you know what? Don't do that. My job at one level is about money, power, and influence. My job is to be as famous as I possibly can for the purposes of the University of North Carolina so people will know me. And I've also regardless of whether my research is good or bad, I've got to pay for the English department. I've got to pay for the classics department. I've got to raise money. And I'll make tenure not based on how brilliant I am, but how much money. Is the English department doing okay? It's going to be part of the criterion for my success. And that was a real pop on the face to me. It's like, oh, okay. And here's a man, he said, and I'm not sure that's the gospel. So you understand that my job is very hard. I read this gospel of turning the other cheek, but my job says procure power and influence. So this is not going to always be easy. And he said, you know, I want you to help me remember both sides of that tension. Don't be so gaga that I'm a, a, a young professor here. And I think that that was absolutely true. Um, university. Un- comes from the word universe. Uh, you wanna, the, the, the Soul of the University, and this was written by a Duke professor, a guy named Richard Marsden. Um, in fact, he was um, one of the more famous uh, historians in the religion department here. He's at Notre Dame now. But his last act at Duke University before leaving for Notre Dame was he wrote a big article in the Chronicle, front page, Is There Any Room for Christianity at Duke? And his answer was essentially a very nice, no, <laughs> there's not. And, 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 and you could see his motives for leaving. But one of the things that he points out, he's a historian, is that the university is committed to this idea of the universe. The single view, the answer, the formula. For those of you who have philosophy backgrounds and sociology backgrounds, you know that the driving impulse behind the Enlightenment was to find the principle that explained how things work. Whether it, and, and, and the university is set up with competition. Whether it's an evolutionary biologist or a physicist or a chemist or an engineer or a lit theorist, They're all working for that to find that answer. And part of the movement of the Enlightenment was the sense that society did not work well when religious or superstitious people were in charge. So Locke, we'll get out of this in a minute, but Locke, Rousseau, Bacon, all of these people who crafted the social contract, one of the subtexts of it was that society bonds together for a better good, and religious people somehow subjugate their religion so that we quit killing each other and we find the greater good. So the universe, the view of the Enlightenment is be religious, but only to a point. And don't be so religious such that you prevent us from finding the truth. So as Marsden said in his book, The Soul of the American University, he basically said don't ever miss this point, that the point of the university as it was formed, and it has changed in many places, but as it was formed was to keep religion in its place lest it mess up society. So if you've faced some opposition or challenge academically, philosophically, or socially, well, you've gone to the place where you're supposed to have that challenge. Now to me that's one of the most exciting things in the world but it's all to say that the question you've given to me, how do we live in a university as Christians, is a very, very difficult thing. And I'm just talking about our brains right now and our minds, not necessarily our bodies and our social lives. So do I get an amen on that? It's kind of hard, right? Very hard. So let's think about what are some things we could do to respond to the difficulty of living in a university. Here are some possible responses. And you tell me what you think they're good ones or not. One would be arguing with and trying to convert your professors who are implicitly against God, which actually may not be true. I know lots and lots of professors who have profound faith. But how about that? Uh, Arguing with your professors, this would be kind of the defiance approach. You think you know something, but I know something better. Would that work? No. It's not even respectful. You've come to the university to hear and learn from these people. I say to anyone who goes to the University of North Carolina, you are crazy if you don't take a class with Bart Ehrman. He is one of the reasons that you would go there. And there are people, I'm sure, scores and scores here at Duke, who would fit that description. So I don't don't recommend the defiance approach. How about this? Why don't we form a community that separates itself from all those people who don't believe, all those people who are working against that? How about that as an approach? Kind of fun. it would be a good thing to do. The problem is, and it's just a little problem, is the gospel seems to imply that you shouldn't do those things, all that salt and light stuff. And so the isolation approach... It's fun, it just doesn't seem to work. How about this? I'll be the smartest. I'll be one of them. I will learn it. I'll be better. I'll have more power. I will beat them at their game. Someday I'll be the tenured chemist and we'll be talking about God in class. (laughs) Would that work? It might be fun. Actually, some of you may do that. It might be really fun. There's another little problem. It's the gospel that keeps talking about giving up power rather than holding on to power. So the power approach doesn't seem to work very well. How about this? And I, and I don't mean, I'm not talking about you here, but well, that's terrible. <laughs> Scratch that comment when you hear what I'm about to say. There's the, <laughs> the hip, cool, <laughs> beauty approach. And, 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 and the reason I said this is that a lot of youth ministries and student ministries work on that principle. Yeah. The, you get the most attractive people who have a high profile and a great figure for Jesus, and they show up to the event, and don't we all want to follow them? Well, actually, we don't. Uh, most of us saw the Breakfast Club, or you were too young to see that. You saw them, did but, you know, we, don't, we don't think that way. But a lot of student ministries work on the beauty principle, the influence principle. Get the pretty people in, and, and we'll influence them for God. Again, it doesn't Jesus seemed to avoid those people and challenge them rather than build ministries around them. Um, one more approach is you just read the end of the Bible, you see how it turns out, you hold it up in somebody's face, and you say, Scoreboard! Uh, we win! <laughs> We're the guys who win. And, you know, that just doesn't seem very nice, (laughs) even if it's true. So how do we live on campus? And I have some pretty quick advice for you on this. And the text that was read is one of the most defining to me. This is my text in the New Testament. Nothing has changed my thinking more than thinking about this text um, let me let me tell you what who it's written to uh, you may know this this was a serial letter given to lots of churches in asia minor uh turkey where we are now and and it it was a letter written to persecuted struggling fledgling churches this gathering here would qualify as one of the largest recipient church groups in the whole deal so people are getting this in little groups of 10 to 20 in big cities where they are now starting to be persecuted for their faith, both by the empire and by uh, Jews who find their status being invoked. And and notice here, catch the segue, when I describe the university, there are characteristics of empire that describe university that match quite well with the empire we talk about in the New Testament. So um, these little fledgling churches, getting the crap kicked out of them, Get a letter that says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. That's like telling me I can dunk. Uh, it's just <laughs> not true. It's never going to be true. But these words are absolutely overwhelming words. They're the greatest words of the Old Testament, given to Israel, now given to the beat-up, fledgling New Testament churches that Peter is writing to. And so what he's telling them is that this is your identity. You are this. You're not what you look at or look like. You are a chosen people. So if you can imagine being a Christian on campus, let's imagine it as a dance. And the first position is this. We must embrace our God-given identity as God's people in the face of an empire that does not stand for God's purposes. So in other words, we live in a place that doesn't exist for God. It exists for good purposes, sometimes, but we live in that place with that royal identity as God's people. We don't accept the language that we're worthless. We don't accept the language that we have nothing to do. We embrace that identity. So that's the first position. Now this goes on, and it... it, it refers to the people as aliens and strangers. Those are simple words, but they're perhaps some of the most agenda-shaping words of the New Testament because we are being told that your expectation set of living in this world is not as emperors, not as kings, not as power brokers, but as aliens and strangers. There's a mythology that's told, at least in my religious tradition growing up, was that America was an evangelical prayer meeting, circa 1739. It was not. Certainly, it was a beautiful place offering religious freedom. But there isn't this secret past where we were in charge and somehow we let go. The, the story of the Old Testament and the New Testament is a people of God, a royal priesthood in exile. And so what we're being told here is to embrace being in exile, be the aliens and strangers that you are. So the second position is this. Rather than being embittered, entitled, self-righteous persons, we must understand that we're strangers in a strange land. That's who we are. Royal priesthood, strangers in a strange land. Now, the very end of this, and in my tradition, we tended to read over these verses because we didn't like them, because it seemed to imply that there was something about action involved in following Christ. I don't know why, but it says, Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from the simple desires which war against your soul and live such good lives that though you'll be abused, people will glorify God when the whole thing ends. So the third part of this is decisively ethical. Embracing our identity, our expectations as aliens and strangers, and our mission comes out of that identity and that set of expectations, and the mission is not really complex. It's live such good lives. And what kind of ethics is being talked about here? It's an ethic of kindness. That's an overwhelming act. It's an ethic of hospitality, even an ethic of martyrdom at times. Martyrdom is giving up one's power, giving up one's right. In Greek, the word for martyr and witness are the same word. Big surprise. It's an ethic of creating beauty, creating things that are decisively beauty. It's also an ethic for being a fool, as I was sometimes for good reasons and some for stupid reasons, but being a fool for Christ. And big surprise. Peter and Paul agree on this point. Paul wrote a whole letter in the New Testament, Second uh, Corinthians, about this point, that The gospel is best proclaimed in weakness. In fact, he writes a a satirical, sarcastic, nasty little subnote to the Corinthians in that book uh, that's in a, a genre called a fool's narrative, where he takes on the fool and he says, Indeed, I am a fool, as you've said, to you wise Corinthians, but let me tell you what great foolishness fits into my place and what my foolishness does for God. And he goes on to tell things that he's not proud of, like escaping from a city in a basket to get away from. And the, the Corinthians have accused him of being a wimp, only strong in a distance when he's writing nice nasty letters, not strong in person. And he's telling this worst moment because he's saying this, I believe in my foolishness. It's the greatest platform to affirm what God is doing. That's what weakness does. This is the very point of Peter. This is why Peter writes to, you know, who gets a double dipping of Peter? Women, slaves, children, and citizens of the empire. He's not disinterested in men or people of power, but he's basically saying those of you who are marginalized in your pain, you have a much greater platform to declare God's good work. So in many ways, this is kind of the three-part dance. Not only do we embrace our identity as God's people, not only do we embrace the expectations as aliens and strangers, but we embrace in the university at times the posture of a servant, a friend, and a fool because those acts bring the whole system down. What was the greatest fear that the Roman Empire had of Christians? What was their greatest fear? What act undermined the whole thing worse than anything? It was martyrdom. People who were willing to die, what can you take from them? (laughs) But how great is their testimony? So our place in the university life is those steps of the dance and particularly the willingness to give up power, to serve radically, to go overwhelming in acts of kindness, to serve those who, though they accuse you of doing wrong or subtext, though they accuse you of being stupid, may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Now, if I have a second, I want to read a little story (laughs) and we'll go out on this one. (laughs) This is modern tale that I've come across. I love it. It's called The Three Little Wolves and the Big Bad Pig. Now, do you, you, you remember the flip side, <laughs> the, the three little pigs and the big bad wolf. Well, this reverses it. Now, let me tell you, and some of you this will be a little scary for you guys because you'll get to see the pictures, so uh, I, hope it, I hope it doesn't wear you out too much. But I think this is our mission. So there were these three fuzzy little wolves, cute, prancy, all of those things, and they had always been told by their mother, go and build a house for you, yourselves. But beware of the big, bad pig. And I guess you're getting the metaphor here <laughs> of what the big, bad pig is. And so they went out, and they built themselves a house of bricks. That seems pretty logical. But the big, bad pig was not big and bad for nothing. He comes along, and he says, little wolves, little wolves, I'm going to blow your house down. So he huffs and he puffs. But you know what? You don't really blow down Houses of bricks, but the big bad pig also had a sledgehammer. <laughs> and he blasted their little house of bricks. So the little fuzzy wolves, they barely escaped with their chinny chin chins and their little tails intact. And they said, Yeah, we've got to build a better house. And so they got some mortar and bricks and uh, metal rebars and all sorts of <laughs> things. And they built this unbelievable palace of cement. But the big bad pig comes along and he says, hey, I'll huff and I'll puff and I'll blow your house down. So he huffed and he puffed and he puffed and he huffed, but the house wouldn't fall down. But he wasn't big and bad for nothing, so he went and got his pneumatic drill (laughs) and he destroyed their little house of cement. Take that, little wolves. So they barely escaped. And they said, we've got to build a stronger house. So they procured not only metal, steel, barbed wire, videos for surveillance equipment. They built a gated community. They just—they mean they built the house that one could ever. Instead, a so big bad pig comes by and he says, "I'll huff and I'll puff and I'll blow your house down." So he huffed and he puffed and he puffed and he huffed, but the house wouldn't blow down. But the pig wasn't called big and bad for nothing. He brought some dynamite, laid it against the house, lit the fuse. And blew up their little house. How about that? So the three little wolves, barely escaping, said, "What can we do? We've got ever i mean, what's left?" And the only thing that was left to them is they had a neighbor who was a flower vendor, and so they built a house of flowers. Now, of course, the big, big, bad pig is coming by, and. He basically comes by the house and he says, I'm going to huff and I'm going to puff and I'm going to blow your house down. But as he took a deep breath, ready to huff and puff, he smelled the soft scent of the flowers and it was fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) And because the scent was so lovely, the pig took another breath and then another. And instead of huffing and puffing, he began to sniff. He sniffed deeper and deeper until he was quite filled with the fragrant scent his heart grew tender, and he realized how horrible he'd been. I know this is a little Brady Bunch here. Right then, he decided to become a big, good pig. And he started to sing and dance. And at first, the three little wolves were a bit worried. I mean, it might be a trick. But soon they realized that the pig had truly changed. So they came running out of the house and they started playing games with him. They offered him pea and strawberries and wolfberries and asked him to stay with them as long as he wanted. The pig accepted, and they all lived happily ever after. This is brilliant. I mean, this, that was one of the best postmodern. This is the house of flowers. That's what you're doing. When you say this is a community of God-seekers, God-doubters, God-angriers, God-lovers, all of those things, what you're telling people is this is a house of flowers. And the way we will live in this community is we'll live in beauty. We'll live in kindness. We'll live in holiness. And we will embrace you. I encourage you and give you Godspeed and hopefully you do much better than I did at that. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Good to see you.